All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Illusion of Consensus podcast with myself, Rav Arora, and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Today, we are really excited to host Dr. Robert Malone, who is an American physician and biochemist and expert in mRNA technology. Um, throughout the pandemic, uh, his advocacy has become more and more well-known, and he's been openly talking about the risks of mRNA vaccines and has been a vocal opponent of mandates. And uh, we're looking forward to having a conversation with him and Jay on the corruption of academia, censorship, and the pharmaceutical industry, and the future of the scientific establishment. Uh, Jay, Robert, welcome. Thank uh, you, Rav. It's always so good to be here. Welcome, Robert. So, and so glad you accepted our invitation to talk. I've been looking forward to this for a very long time. Well, I'm honored. Uh, you're so busy. I just, uh, I'm, I'm uh, glad to have a moment of your time. Uh, I can't imagine what your life must be like still maintaining <laughs> an academic position while all of this is circulating around us. Well, it's certainly been overturned as, as I know your life has been. Um, Robert, I was hoping you could tell the audience something about your journey because it is so interesting. I mean, I first, uh, I first learned about you roughly the same time almost everybody else did. Because I'm not in that uh, in that biochemical you know bio, bio, biochemical world. I'm not in that kind of research. I do different kind of research. And um, yeah, I'm I'm more uh, historically. Uh, well, okay. So the question is when to begin. I think I'll jump in the, in the middle. Um, before, um, just about a year before nine eleven. Uh, there was a seminal event in the gene therapy academic community uh, and in gene therapy research, uh, which had become uh, really quite uh, a uh, a clicky world of uh, insiders and anointed, very much like the vaccine space is or AIDS research is, with a lot of big money behind it. And... I was a uh, one of the leaders in developing a sector of the gene therapy space that was counterculture, uh, involving non-viral gene delivery rather than uh, viral-based, viral-vectored vaccines and and therapeutics, <clears throat> and. Um, uh, the person that had grown to become the most prominent scientist in the gene therapy space, uh, certainly within the NIH funding sphere, uh, was involved. Uh, his name was Jim Wilson. Uh, he was, you know, uh, big pharma money behind him, UPenn, uh, his own institute, uh, limousines, all that stuff, all the trappings of big money science that we've come to see after, you know, since the Bayh-Dole Act was enacted. Uh, he was involved in a gene therapy trial involving an adenovirus vector uh, trying to treat a uh, inborn error metabolism in, in young children. And uh, one of the people enrolled in one of his clinical trials uh, was uh, dosed 
repeatedly with an adenoviral vector and uh, did that's, not that's respond. That's the kind of vaccine that the J&J vaccine used or the AstraZeneca yeah, vaccine. Yeah, J&J right? vaccine and AstraZeneca are the same technology. So it's gene therapy technology, but in this case used for gene therapy. And the young man's name was Jesse Gelsinger. And uh, Jesse died on the table uh, during a adenoviral vector infusion. And this was the first clear attributable gene therapy death. And it created a huge uh, amount of controversy. And there was the usual uh, attempts to obscure what had actually taken place. I, and I remember that, Robert, that there was a, a big scandal inside the biomedical community over over that specific thing, because there was so, a lot of hope. Right? So I was at the center of that scandal um, in the sense that I was, uh, just as I am now in a way, a uh, member of the community who had intimate knowledge of the events and the technology. And uh, at the time, I was in the middle of... Uh, mandated bioethical training as a NIH-funded uh, young investigator. Robert, you, uh, you've gone mute. Uh, can you hear me okay? Oh, there you're back. You're back. I can hear you. Yeah. You're back. As, as I was going along in that training, uh, this event happened, and I spoke to my mentor, who turns out also to have been Jill's PhD mentor for her uh, degree. Jill is your uh, wife. Right. Correct. Uh, and I told him I knew uh, what these events were uh, and what the context was around this, and I described what I knew about the situation, which was very different from what was being pushed out by UPenn and corporate media at the time. And uh, he told me that, in his opinion, I had a moral obligation to go public with what I knew. And uh, I knew that if I did that, it would destroy my career as a gene therapy uh, researcher, NIH-funded gene therapy researcher. And uh, But faced with the dilemma, uh, I decided that I would follow what I thought was the moral and proper pathway and uh, go public with what I knew about this and work to help the press comprehend what had actually happened, which in this case was that uh, Jim Wilson and his team had gone off protocol in a clinical trial protocol and had it was a dose escalation trial in which they had reached the end of the dose escalation and the young gentleman had not responded clinically, which they believed was impossible that he would not uh, respond clinically because of all the science that they had done, the work they had done previously in animal models. And uh, so uh, they went off protocol and uh, escalated yet another level. And when they did that, it triggered uh, DIC, and uh, the gentleman died of uh, complications of uh, disseminated intravascular coagulation. Uh, 
So that that's a that's a condition where you you're basically you have uh, uh, your blood all over your body uh, coagulates essentially clots. Yeah, and and you uh, have uh, a blood pressure crisis and and multi organ failure, and that's what happened to Gelsinger. And uh, there was a very active attempt to obscure these facts. And I, with, with the um, advice, under the advice of, of my bioethics mentor, I had uh, gone to the press with what I knew about this, um, including the New York Times. And uh, um, uh, met, I had encountered members of the press at an NIH conference where they were discussing these matters. I was at University of Maryland, Baltimore at the time. And uh, um, so, for instance, Cheryl Gay Stolberg, uh, this was her big break as a young journalist, uh, was uh, that she connected with me and I helped her to understand what was going on. And she wrote a series of articles that uh, um, really put her on the map. And... uh, as predicted, it had the uh, anticipated outcome of uh, I became an immediate persona, persona non grata. My uh, bioethics mentor uh, jumped into the middle of this after after I had spoken out, uh, connected with uh, Gelsinger's father, and uh, ended up getting quite a bit of money uh, to be involved in a bioethics institute uh, that was set up, uh, with the settlement money that, uh, Mr. Gelsinger received. So my bio bioethics mentor did fine out of it. Uh, I, not so much, I pretty much destroyed my academic career. And it was at a time in which there was a lull in NIH funding. Anyhow, gene therapy funding crashed. This is Uh, right after the doubling of NIH money in the late nineties, right? Right. Well, this is right at the late 90s. So um, uh, I was left um, really as as a person in academe that had been surviving on soft money, rising to associate professor level on soft money uh, over the span of uh, about a decade. Uh, I was left with no money and uh, no safety net and uh, kind of out of necessity, took a position with uh, Department of Defense at the um, uh, Uniform University of the Health Sciences, USUS, as an associate professor of surgery, working on a breast cancer project. And I set up a big breast cancer research institute, which, by the way, now there's one of my uh, um, cyber stalkers are asserting that... uh, um, somehow in doing this, I was uh, involved in uh, in creating the conditions uh, in enabling uh, the 9-11 events. I'm still a little confused. About <laughs> I mean, what um, I've, what my experience with that is that people people that want to destroy your message or make your message makes them uncomfortable will say almost anything. It's it's. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it's in any case. So uh, the key point here kind of jumping in the middle of my career is that I'd already built one career in academe uh, after the events around my initial discoveries as a young man at 28 at the Salk Institute. 
which um, resulted in a great big uh, academic squabble over who was going to get rich off of that. Um, uh, and uh, um, I ended up with a post-traumatic stress disorder and a nervous breakdown. But um, so I'd recovered from that, built an academic career, faced this uh, moral junction of whether to uh, stay silent and maintain my career or speak out about what I knew about a crucial event um, and stand up against oh, what was then an, an equivalent of the media juggernaut of what was going, what's been going on now over the last three years. So Robert, just to, and, just to step back for a second to that, to that, your, the, the invention when you were 28, I mean, I read some of those patents uh, to prepare for this conversation. Those were, those were fundamental contributions to the mRNA technology uh, that you're talking about that we are currently using for the vaccines, the, the, the mRNA vaccines now. It's, not- it's essentially, you know, outside of the composition of matter of the expressed protein, the spike, the engineered spike, um, it's all there. The method of manufacturing of the mRNA is still the same. The, uh, there's subtle nuances that differ in the sequences used, but the structure of the RNA that I uh, pioneered and, and demonstrated remains the same. The manufacturing purification process remains the same. Uh, the delivery technology is fundamentally the same with some nuances. There, there, there were other, some like the advances of substituting uris, pseudouracil for uracil and, and other, other. Yeah, other, pseudouridine. So that's. Oh, that's sorry, an, sorry, pseudouridine, yes. That's that's an interesting one, um, and that's the one that the press focuses on because that uh, is the one of the key patent positions that both Moderna and uh, BioNTech Pfizer rely upon, which is another UPenn patent. If you go back to the patent that uh, was filed and issued for uh, Carrico and Weissman from UPenn about pseudouridine. What's fascinating about it is there are absolutely no claims about use for vaccination. Hmm. Um, the assertion that they uh, uh, were the uh, inventors of the tech uh, has no basis in the patent literature, let's say, whereas those uh, patents from uh, the disclosure in 88 and then through the patents um, filings in 90 and 91 have the full reduction to practice including uh, mounting immune response in mammals. Uh, so it's, it's, all, it's all there, and, and the, uh, uh, the improvement since then, the most important improvement was actually not the pseudouridine. The pseudouridine is not enabling, Jay, if you understand patent literature. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a, a company uh, in, in Europe called CureVac, that actually advanced a competing mRNA vaccine, but they used a lower dose of mRNA. They were more cautious in their dose escalation studies in humans. And so it mounted a lower level of antibody response, but did not use pseudouridine. But that lower level of antibody response can be easily uh, attributed to the fact they just used a lower dose. Yeah. So it's it's all of this around the pseudouridine story is, um, uh, basically uh, a manufactured story uh, and um, it, it's not supported in this in the scientific literature or the findings in terms of uh, 
the activity. What, what does matter that is always overlooked is the work at University of British Columbia, uh, which uh, apparently the rumor is that Justin Trudeau's family has a significant financial stake in that. And that has to do with the formulation of the, of the fats, the positively charged lipids. Yeah. And that's, that's what's really enabling the pseudouridine is not. So, um, um, uh, so Robert, I wanted, I, I just bring that up mainly. I just want to complete the picture. You have been through a tremendous you you were battle tested at the at the eve of this pandemic you'd been th- you'd been through fights over uh over academic uh, uh sort of priority and and uh um sort of patents over the, the some of the central technologies used in the vaccines in this pandemic and many and, other tech uh so this this is well, this is the only thing you know i created this company uh Inovio, and uh, that's, that uses post-electrical fields for delivery of polynucleotides, including for vaccination. And that also was another um, hotly contested area. I cut my teeth in the AIDS business uh, starting in 1983. In uh, the lab so I was sure. in, uh, was my, my mentor traveled with Bob Gallo to visit Luc Montagnier. I, I had met Luc Montagnier years and years ago and remained friends until he passed away recently. Um, I was well familiar with all the dirty academic politics that went on with AIDS. That and was, that was and so let's, we'll, we'll, we'll revisit that another time. Cause, but I just want to bring up, I want to, I want to, I want to fast forward to 2020, 2021, but um, just, just yeah. to paint the picture for the audience, you would, you were battle tested. You would, not only had you been involved in these academic fights, you, you had, you'd blown the whistle on it on a scandal and not just an academic scandal, a major medical scandal on the application of a, of a new technology before uh, in your history. And you'd paid the cost for that. You'd essentially been ostracized within academics. Now let's jump to 2020. All right. So 2020 arrives, the world is going crazy with the lockdowns. There's a, there's this push to, to develop a vaccine as rapidly as they possibly could with uh, in with Operation Warp Speed, uh, not just but not just Operation Warp Speed around the world, there's all this race essentially to develop a vaccine, almost from the moment we learned about the the, the virus. Um, what was your response? How how did you view that? What was you what was you, what were you thinking at the time? So, <clears throat> just to set the clock on this, what we now know is that race to develop that vaccine preceded uh, public in and uh, executive branch awareness of the uh, virus itself, um, which is a, an oddity, but it's well-documented now. Um, it's hard to explain without going down various uh, conspiracy theory pathways, which we don't need to go down. But um, so uh, I first learned of the threat associated with this novel coronavirus on January 4th of 2020. When I got, remember that I'm, I'm a, not only battle hardened in the way that you described, but I've been through multiple outbreaks. Uh, I was at the tip of the spear uh, for the Ebola West Africa outbreak, um, acting on behalf of DOD. But at that point in time, I had learned, uh, I had I'd become a consultant and had learned the lesson that to survive in D.C., you have to keep your head down. And to survive as a consultant, uh, the best strategy is to let your clients take credit for what you're doing um, and just go about your business and and try to provide service. So at that point, I'm kind of a lone operator 
uh, running a small boutique consulting shop, uh, valued generally for my willingness to uh, provide independent, uh, let's say, truth speech, typically to C-suite people, as well as my expertise in writing grants and proposals and understanding uh, um, regulatory affairs and clinical research, I'd completed a fellowship at Harvard in uh, global clinical research. And so uh, um, in the course of all this work, I developed various relationships within the biodefense industry, which is rife with people who are um, with the within the uh, intelligence community. Uh, you know, it is, I, I, and I had been uh, received uh, secret clearance from DOD. Uh, so I, I know many people who are very high profile in this industry who are full on CIA. And uh, that's not because I'm CIA, it's because that is the nature of being in the biodefense business. Um, it is, it is, significantly dominated by uh, intelligence community members <coughs> and continues to be so. Um, so I received a call from one of those that I had known for years and co-published with previously in the Zika outbreak on January 4th. And I believed at the time that he was calling from Wuhan that in, in stuff that he's published in National Geographic and other things, uh, which I think is mostly kind of propaganda. Um, he's now said that he was not in Wuhan at the time, but arrived there shortly thereafter. This would be Dr. Michael Callahan, who is truly brilliant. And by the way, was the one that both managed the uh, Diamond Princess uh, events and uh, the build out of the tent hospitals in New York City and set the policy for uh, ventilator use in the United States and uh, for how how we would manage uh, the nursing homes, extended care facilities. So Callahan has long been an advisor to presidents and is, is often the intelligence community and DARPA's uh, point man when there's a hot zone somewhere in the world, China, Africa, wherever. Um, and, uh, so, uh, he gave me a ring on January 4th and told me that there was this novel coronavirus circulating in Wuhan since the end of December that, uh, was looking like it was out of control and it was a major biologic threat and asked that I engage in this as I had with prior outbreaks and uh, bring together a team, which is one of my core skills, uh, to uh, respond to this potential threat. And uh, what I did at that time, as I usually do, is, is I worked up a threat assessment uh, after gathering what I could from the literature and, and lay sources and other sources of information about and networking with colleagues about this novel coronavirus. And my assessment was that the timeline for developing a safe and effective vaccine, given that the history of coronavirus vaccine development for humans was abysmal, uh, a history of repeated failure uh, combined with the threat of antibody-dependent enhancement. 
And a very similar story, but slightly better on the veterinary side. Uh, there are a couple of licensed veterinary coronavirus vaccines. But my, my assessment was that to develop a safe and effective vaccine, even though I'm a vaccinologist at that point, but also a specialist in drug repurposing, our best option to mitigate the threat was to act promptly to identify existing licensed repurposed drugs. And so I set about to build a team to do that using uh, high throughput screening and uh, computational uh, drug uh, docking uh, and design and uh, pulled together volunteers, including a team that I was already working with, uh, um, seeking to develop uh, agents which would be countermeasures for uh, um, some of the uh, chemical uh, bio threat agents. And uh, we got going. And among, you know, within a few weeks, we had screened. Uh, um, hundreds of thousands of compounds, uh, the, the entire library of all licensed compounds and known uh, nutraceuticals uh, using computational approaches. Um, I had uh, built a, uh, a model of, of the, um, some of the key proteins in coronavirus uh, in, in terms of a modeled uh, X-ray crystallography version of the protein, and uh, among other things, we identified the compound famotidine, uh, as well as a number of others, as leading candidates, and proceeded to focus on drug repurposing. It was only later, just uh, um, just uh, just from the timeline, Robert. This is a uh, this is like early 2020. They this is January 2020. This is January, like January 2020. Okay. We, I notified uh, the Pentagon and the White House um, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation of our findings in drug repurposing, I think in uh, late February. Uh, meanwhile, Jill got going writing a book that I helped co-author on how to prepare and protect yourself from the novel coronavirus. We sat here in the house next to each other on the couch working on our computers, uh, and she published that on using self-publishing through Amazon in the first week of February, 2020. It was subsequently taken down uh, without explanation by Amazon um, in March. And uh, we finally found out that the explanation for why it was taken down was that it had violated community guidelines. Wait, 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 hold on, hold on. Just so, just so the audience knows. So, so by March, 2020, you're, you're proposing based on your background, um, some hypotheses about potential uh, cheap repurposed drugs, at least, at least like it, it more, angles more than which, more uh, than hypotheses. I was infected in the end of February uh, because I was at an MIT uh, drug discovery conference, computational drug discovery conference, um, actually lodged across the street from the company that is given credit for being ground zero for the Boston outbreak. Um, and I developed uh, severe COVID. So I would got Wuhan one during the very first wave in Boston and uh, came home with burning lungs and out of desperation, tried some of the drugs that we, I was so afraid because it was, it was considered so unethical for a physician to self-treat 
um, using an experimental procedure. Um, but I, I felt desperate. I had to do something. I thought I was going to die. I, I was deep in our, the team that I developed had uh, other pathologists. Uh, we'd all convinced ourselves that uh, the outcome of, of infection with this virus was going to be uh, progressive pulmonary interstitial fibrosis, which is a, you know, eventual life compromising disease. And I, I was going to die. Um, so out of desperation, I started taking um, some of the agents that we'd identified. And the one that I got an immediate uh, clinical response from was famotidine. Um, and so I already had that as an N of one. And then again, so frightened, but somebody in our uh, close circle their father, who is morbidly obese and worked at a local hospital, also developed COVID. And I had uh, just out of out of empathy and desperation for the family, um, told them to get famotidine and for him to start taking it. In order to treat with famotidine, you have to go far above the recommended dose for gastritis. Um, uh, and it's all there's a, a paper out uh, that I published uh, as first author in uh, um, Frontiers in Pharmacology that, that lays this out, uh, the, the pharmacology of why you have to have that level of famotidine. Um, so, so, you, so you'd find something that was, that was uh, a potentially useful early treatment. It's, it's a cheap drug. Um, now, uh, and you published the idea and- And, and got the funding on, for it. I got about $20 million for funding. You had funding uh, for it. You published it on trials. Amazon. And Amazon pulls the the book. Yeah, did so the you, book did, the you... book was more about a standard. Uh, um, the the book was written really for our, our the people around us, the average person, and it was just standard stuff relating to known uh, mitigation measures in the event of an infectious disease outbreak. Because we had been in this business for over a decade, um, and so, uh, so, the, so it was question, standard, question, standard I want, stuff. I want to understand why would they pull the book? Like, so Amazon is in the business of selling books. Um, they're not. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't so help. So we them. had the same problem, Jay. Um, it made no sense. And as I say, sometimes I write this in our book, uh, "The um, Lies My Government Told Me," as as kind of my red pill moment. We also were perplexed. Uh, you know, had over a hundred references written in an academic style, a detailed uh, chapter on the novel coronavirus and what was known at the time that I wrote. Um, it was standard uh, guidance. Uh, and we did discuss masks. Uh, we discussed the, the good, uh, you know, the data in support and the data against the use of masking. Um, and, uh, it was very data-based, but then translated into common language and was selling quite good. Uh, and so we were perplexed as you are now and tracked it down. Um, immediately preceding this, there was a series of meetings at the White House uh, with the World Health Organization, Amazon, uh, Google, and many others uh, focused on uh, the threat of mis- and disinformation with COVID. And of course, there were there were these famous FOIA emails from Mark Zuckerberg to Tony Fauci very very early on in the pandemic. I think January January twenty twenty. That's that's right. So in January twenty twenty, and and I've got the details, the 
um, Washington Post article cited. There was uh, multiple articles, fairly obscure, in the lay press covering these meetings that were held at the White House. In there were preceding meetings at the World Health Organization, in which it was we okay. Everyone, we apologize. We just had a, a technical glitch, uh, but we're back to continue with Jay and Robert. Uh, Jay, why don't you uh, start us off again? Yeah, That's Robert, thank off. you. Uh, so sorry about the, the glitch, but you know, you were telling us the story about uh, talking with Callahan, and you were you were in the midst of telling us the story about uh, the, the the potentially the virus having come out of labs in Wuhan, and uh, my, and uh, as a result of intentional uh, intentional lab work. I had a, an amazing series in retrospect of calls with Michael Callahan in January, February, and March of 2020. Uh, including in real time as he was managing the Diamond Princess outbreak and uh, designing and deploying the tent hospitals in New York City and uh, uh, being engaged in setting uh, policy for ventilator use in the United States and uh, um, nursing home policy and uh, working closely with the White House at the time. And uh, two of the ones that are, are kind of amazing in retrospect, one was uh, when I told him that I had assembled this team to use computational uh, methods, high throughput methods to uh, discover repurposed drugs. And he had said that they'd already had all of the um, big pharma teams through the White House and discussed with them. And there was no way that we would be able to come up with anything different other than, you know, or better than what pharma was going to be able to come up with. Uh, and then the other one was uh, when I uh, was uh, asking him about the information that was really starting to circulate about the potential that the virus was engineered in the laboratory in Wuhan rather than being a uh, emergent phenomena from uh, the seafood market, which is how the original isolate that I built my uh, x-ray crystallography models off of was originally uploaded to NIH, I think on the 11th of January, um, as the Wuhan seafood market virus. <clears throat> and Callahan had told me that, he, quote, his people had been all over the sequence of the virus and there was absolutely no indication that it was engineered, which I now know in retrospect was a lie. And who his people were, quote unquote, I can only infer. Michael is is absolutely CIA. Uh, I've met his case officer, um, who is a was a senior academic at Harvard. Michael has an appointment at Harvard. Um, uh, and uh, Michael a case can be made. I, Michael is one of the government's top experts in gain of function research. Uh, and um, uh, Whitney Webb has documented that history far beyond what I knew about him in an article that she's published uh, called uh, DARPA's Man in Wuhan uh, that can be um, readily found on the, on the web. So uh, I, you know, and and Michael was not the only person in the intelligence community that I was interacting with. There were others that were um, from different camps. 
that had been involved in uh, development of the core uh, CIA uh, biodefense uh, infectious disease uh, data capture systems um, that go back to the 70s from when they were building them. Uh, It's important to understand that the the, biodefense enterprise... You would already, in your history... You had already been involved with some of these activities, not not necessarily the gain of functional work for this virus, but like the the defense industry's involvement with biodefense. That was something that was not that was familiar to you. That wasn't something that that was new to you in March of 2020. No, I I entered the biodefense world of necessity uh, after I destroyed my career in gene therapy, and a uh, um a senior guy in the Department of Business and Economic Development at the state of Maryland had connected me to a new company that had just won a major uh, government contract up in Frederick, Maryland for uh, managing all uh, government-related biodefense products uh, for the military called Dineport Vaccine Company. And uh, this was this is before the pandemic. So you had you had a history here. This, this is this is uh, right after uh, the anthrax attacks. Right. So like two thousand. I mean, that was that two thousand and one. Right. Um, Correct. So so now you you have this um, you have this history, and now you you're hearing from the uh, from some folks your connections inside the, uh, inside this biodefense industry that look the, 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 essentially this is not a simply uh, a, a public health disaster. It's it's potentially something that they're thinking of as a biodefense bio disaster. Um, and they're, and now they've employed techniques like misinformation, disinformation to suppress what people, what scientists are talking about it. And censorship. Um, and censorship, as evidence, right. As evidenced by the well, uh, we've Amazon. We've subject to that, right? Um, so, so you're, so what's, what is your, what's your response to this? Like, how, how did you think, how did you, I mean, like at this point in the pandemic, I was I was still an academic. I mean, I still I guess I still am an academic. Um, but I was focused on on doing science. I thought I can run. I, I didn't know how widespread the disease was, but it looked to me like the that in March of 2020 that it was it was likely very widespread. I've been following the data out of out of Wuhan, obviously the Diamond Princess. I've been following the data um, uh, that, that was as, as best I could. It was published, you know, in in, in Med Archive. I'd seen the age stratification. I'd seen the the data about how uh, you know these the Chinese restaurant study of how the disease spread from one end to the other. It was very clearly aerosolized, uh, and so I was like, I, I had a hypothesis that it was pretty widespread. So I figured I'd just do normal science. I would run a study of how widespread the disease was in the population in Santa Clara County and, the, and then later LA County, um, and I was met with. A furious backlash for what I just thought was a normal study. Like, wouldn't wouldn't we want to know how widespread the disease already was before we, uh, or, or as we were engaging in these absolute extraordinary measures to try to control the spread of it? Um, it seemed to me that the entire uh, uh, apparatus of science was focused on not knowing the answer to that question. Like, for instance, why didn't the CIA, the uh, the the, uh, the CDC not already run that study? I mean, isn't that the an obvious question? Yeah, there, there. I agree. There's a lot of of uh, data points here that are really paradoxes. Um, they make no sense from a public health standpoint, and this is the best argument in favor of those who uh, advance the uh, 
thesis that there were other agendas at play here uh, and uh, pre-planning. And in retrospect, thinking through various small comments that Callahan had made to me during these early months, um, I, I conclude that uh, there were forces at work here that I still don't understand. Uh, and um, I'm still uh, mystified by the um, complete, almost complete and total disconnect between uh, well-established public health and infectious disease norms for outbreaks and uh, the actual on-the-ground uh, management that was performed uh, at WHO and uh, U.S. government levels. It, it makes no sense I mean, again and, and again and again. I mean, there's this like conflation of this is a bioterrorist event is what you're, what you're describing in, in terms of the sources that you were talking with. Um, and, uh, and then the idea that this is a, this is an infectious disease outbreak uh, that we have to manage with standard public health principles. Like normally you would identify who is at high risk. Of course you try to find, just like as you did, try to identify uh, read, readily repurposed drugs that are potentially effective. I, I, you also would want to try to develop a vaccine as rapidly as you can and protect vulnerable people without disrupting society uh, as, as much as possible, not spreading panic and fear. And yet at this time, every single one of those principles gets overturned except for, uh, except for let's develop a vaccine quickly. Yeah. And it's, and, and not just develop a vaccine quickly, but fast track a particular technology. One of the weird, so in, in having been in the world that I used to be in, uh, I would hear a lot of chatter. Uh, we, we could call it the rumor mill, DC rumor mill or whatever. And among those was that Rick Bright, who I've known for years, a former head of uh, BARDA, which is the large contracting arm of HHS that gives out the billion dollar uh, grants, hundreds of millions to billions, uh, to support the development of these various agents and their uh, manufacturing and deployment and stockpiling. Rick Bright, who is head of that organization at the time, uh, the made a a decision to fund uh, Janssen or J&J to advance the adenovirus vector technology for vaccine purposes. Um, and Rick, uh, Rick self uh, identifies as a vaccinologist, although his track record in that is, is marginal. He's more of a bureaucrat manager. So just, just to bring it back to the conversation to that earlier, this is this this is a, a like a like that same technology that led to the death of that Gelsinger. Jesse Gelsinger. Gelsinger. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um and in fact the technology goes back to uh the senior postdoc in the laboratory that I was at at the Salk Institute, Dinko Valerio, who when he left the Salk where he was working on adenovirus vectors while I was working on RNA, um created a company called Crucell that was focused on gene therapy. And then as I was starting to advocate a genetic vaccination as a strategy um, in the community, he came to me once and said that he, he had been convinced by what I had said and he was going to pivot Crucell 
from being a gene therapy company to being a vaccine company. And that's that took off then and eventually was sold to J&J. So that was the lineage of that tech. Um, so, yeah. So, Rick, uh, at that point in time, adenovirus vectors were considered the leading tech for uh, gene therapy-based vaccination. And uh, um, Rick decided to uh, place a very large bet, hundreds of millions, on J&J to develop the vaccine. Um, And you'll recall AstraZeneca in the UK was doing something similar, I think, with Oxford. And uh, um, the way the story goes is that Rick's big sin was that he did not get the approval of Anthony Fauci to do this. And that was the beginning of the rift that eventually led uh, Rick Bright to um, be removed from BARDA, uh, engaged in his whistleblower lawsuit um, against Michael Callahan and others, and uh, leave the government and join the Rockefeller Institute. Um, but the, the point is that even back then, very early, uh, Tony Fauci, if this rumor has merit, uh, only wanted to see the RNA technology advanced, not this uh, adenovirus vector technology, which had previously um, been developed for other vaccines and actually achieved licensure uh, for an Ebola vaccine candidate. Um, and so there, uh, there was a there was a really interesting reanalysis of the trials the, the, for the J and J and AstraZeneca vaccine by a, an epidemiologist in Denmark named Christine Stable Ben. And she found that uh, that the, the while the mRNA vaccines showed no statistically significant benefit in those large trials against death from uh, all cause mortality, yeah. <laughs> an important endpoint. Yeah, and one would think. Uh, <laughs> in, in, in fact, the J and J did. The, I'm sorry, the J and J and the AstraZeneca together, the adenovector virus vaccines, did show some some uh, some benefit against all cause mortality. Um, so it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's you know that's you know, fascinating, Jay. Because if you pick that apart, um, if you look at all-cause uh, mortality as an endpoint with the RNA vaccines, um, that is confounded by the apparent uh, contribution of the toxicity, the RNA tech, to all-cause mortality because of the cardiac event uh, signal. Okay. So, so it, um... could, it could have been that both had efficacy but that in the statistical analysis, the uh, marginal efficacy associated with the mRNA uh, was um, confounded by the undetected uh, excess mortality due to the toxicity of the product. Robert, as you know, uh, this is, this is, these are very complicated, fraught questions. Like we're, we're about to recommend uh, a technology to be used at scale for billions of people. And we need, a, yeah. we need a real solid answer, right? To know, to know this, what are we doing the right thing? How did, again, if the rumors are right, how did Tony Fauci decide that, that, that this one technology was the right, right thing, even before any of the data were in? Like, well, how would you make a single bet? Like, I, you know, a lot of other, a lot of other countries use different technologies. Um, even in this country, there was another vaccine um, technology, these protein subunit vaccines, which are more traditional. Uh, that that seemed to get you know there was a there was, it was sort of slow walked through whereas the mRNA technology and then the J and J oh you're were, you're talking about Novavax 
Novavax, yeah. But, you know, other other yeah. countries. And there was thought- there was also an even more traditional one developed by Hotez that was uh, pushed through Serum Institute in India. And I was involved at the time uh, in supporting a company, an Indian company called Reliance Vaccines. So so I can't get inside of Tony's head and I've refused to try to do so repeatedly. Um, at the time, uh, there, the things that I know are, are demonstrable facts is that um, the Vaccine Research Center, uh, which is uh, Tony Fauci's kind of experimental uh, creating a uh, it's it's basically a an experiment in creating a biotech company within the government within the NIH. That's what the Vaccine Research Center is, and it was set up by uh, with a funding from Dale and Betty Bumpers to develop an AIDS vaccine, and uh, was uh, its launch was uh, guided by David Baltimore, uh, who chose a postdoc of his who had. Uh, been a, a key advisor uh, to Vical, this company that I had basically been the skunk works for back in 1991. And uh, on David's advice, uh, um, uh, Gary Nabel was recruited to run this operation uh, and to basically commercialize DNA vaccines uh, from within the government. That was the genesis of the Vaccine Research Center. And it had operated with an increasing budget. Uh, Gary Nabel had eventually left for a senior position with pharma. Uh, Elizabeth Nabel, who'd also been involved, uh, left the NIH. She's a cardiologist uh, for another high-profile position. And it had gone to uh, uh, Mascola, I think, and uh, some other senior people that had been there for years, and they were really the ones that developed the mRNA vaccine candidate with the spike together with Moderna. Uh, and then there had been a big falling out between that involving a patent battle of who owned the rights to the work product, the composition of matter. And uh, they went kind of their separate ways. And there was some effort to license for free the NIH version of that patent position to uh, a consortium in Africa. Uh, And uh, then subsequently, the key people that were involved that I'm aware of in creating the vaccine, mRNA vaccine under Tony, um, retired uh, and and have taken with them. They retired shortly after the agreement was reached that led to this huge bolus of patent royalties going into the NIH from Moderna. Uh, and they took their, basically took their winnings and left and they're working as consultants to the vaccine industry now. Um, so, and then Carrico and Weissman, uh, Drew Weissman at Penn, uh, who is the one that was pushed together with Katie Carrico as the inventor of mRNA vaccine technology and there was a strong push to try to get the two of them the Nobel Prize. They got the Lasker Award and many others. Um, he's a, a Fauci postdoc. So there's a, a number of threads that go back to Tony, financial and others, that relate to this technology and this particular vaccine candidate, um, as well as apparently threads that go from 
I think it's called Arturus, which paradoxically was the name of one of the recent uh, coronavirus isolates, was the name of the company from spin out from University of British Columbia that uh, had developed the delivery technology formulation that was used in virtually all of these. Um, uh, and that, that rumor has it is, is capitalized and largely owned by the Trudeau Foundation. Um, so that's, that's the cluster right there. And um, why there, there is, the, you, one needs to understand that Moderna is a product of CIA investment. Um, and uh, InQtel, which is the CIA's venture capital arm, is very involved in capitalizing this whole industrial sector, including uh, capitalizing a new manufacturing facility up in Canada. Uh, and just, just so, so, just so like this, I mean, this is not necessarily nefarious, right? So like it's, it's the job of our defense agencies to protect uh, the population against, against, you know, these kinds of uh, potentially bi bi biological threats. So if they're investing in vaccines against things that they think might be biological threats, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Okay. So I've lectured on this. Uh, and what is the justification for <clears throat> polynucleotide vaccine or gene therapy based vaccine technology in the general um, in, in the biodefense enterprise. And it comes down to the need the perceived need to be able to rapidly move from gene to vaccine. And this, the, the genetic vaccine concept and, and reduction of practice that I did back in the late eighties and early nineties is now after, after decades of being considered to be uh, crazy um, is now considered to be the leading candidate for that rapid response capability. Um, the the issue at hand is whether or not uh, the government decisions in their investment uh, portfolio um, were made in a way that um, is consistent, let's say, with the federal acquisition regulations of openness, transparency, and um, objectivity in acquisition. And uh, one of the things about DARPA is that it, basically is allowed to bypass a lot of the uh, norms of government acquisition in the interests of time. A little fun fact as an aside, if, if Tony Fauci or one of his lieutenants was to come up with an idea about what was absolutely necessary for research or development uh, for anything, in general, the studies show it would take five years from concept to awarding a contract or grant. That's how inefficient the bureaucracy is. And so DARPA is allowed to bypass a lot of that stuff in the interests of national security and time. Uh, and so it's given a kind of a carte blanche to break the rules that normally exist. And we've seen that also in the uh, use of the other mechanism, Sacha Latipova speaks about this quite a bit, um, to bypass the normal federal acquisition regulations in the acquisition of the specific mRNA vaccines such as Pfizer and Moderna. I, I mean, I, I think um, the thing is, is it's, it's one thing, I mean, I, I, I hear you that there are potentially abuses of this, of the, the you know, the vast 
amounts of resources used for this, but it's not necessarily a bad thing to, to have a, a, a mechanism to try to respond in case there is a bio That's only essential. That's right. what where we're at. I mean, we're Jay, as you know, now we're in a situation where there's a cadre that a growing cadre of, of, vac- of virus deniers um, yeah. and certainly a large number of people who believe that uh, the government should not be involved in any of this uh, activity involving biodefense. And, uh, um, but I, th- I think the key thing I wish is, it was, I, I completely share, I, I share I wish your there concern. Was no, I, I wish there that we didn't have to have um, some uh, rational basis for rapid development of medical countermeasures. I believe that we do need to have. Yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, I agree with you about that. The question, though, is those need to be subject. The deployment of those re, of those things need to be subject to the same kinds of ideas that we normally use when we deploy other medications. That's at scale, right? These are not anything in, in, in some sense, the, the regulatory oversight of those kinds of things should not be any different. They should be at least as strict, if anything. Uh, well, and it seems and to me- what we've seen is that what many of us, including myself, had thought was uh, the norm in regulatory affairs uh, we we're now forced into a situation of recognizing that there is example after example, after example, not just in the Corona crisis. Um, the opioid crisis is another great example. And there's many others where um, what, what the FDA uh, enumerates in their guidances as the norms for advancing a uh, medical therapeutic are are frequently um, uh, bypassed or um, given short shrift uh, in response to various forms of pressure, political pressure, and others. And okay, Robert. The truth so, uh, is what we've seen here is uh, a really is not that much of an aberration. It's 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 like. The system has has come off its gimbals, uh, and uh, what we've seen nice is is something <laughs> something that is a a particularly florid example of a trend that was already existing. Okay, Robert, I I, I know you have a hard stop, uh, and so and I think we should end this conversation for now and pick this up in the second half. Uh, where we'll finish, we'll, we'll just move forward in time and talk more about the censorship activities, the regulatory, uh, uh, the failure of the, of the public health establishment, and then, yeah, I know you'll laugh again, but how do we fix it? How do we? How do we? How do we get back to something? Yeah, and that's that's the that's the conundrum, and uh, I I it's it's hard. The optimists believe that it can still be reformed from within. And it's increasingly hard for me to to uh, be an optimist about this, as opposed to the uh, um, we're going to have to create parallel organizations and basically destruct the ones that exist because they're too compromised. Yeah. Well, Robert, thank you for thank you for joining us. Uh, let's finish this conversation. We won't release this until we have that second half of the conversation done. Uh, 